You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. And Wrigley. And Wrigley. Wrigley is here. Yes. So, all together in the office to record the podcast on a Friday. Woohoo! Before a long weekend. <laughs> yeah, long weekend. That means we have to cram five days of work into four days next week. Uh, I'll be working on the weekend. So will you. Yeah, I know, but that doesn't change. I know. I know. Hearings have to be in four days instead of five days. Yeah. 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 Normally, normally Monday is light for hearings, but heavy for consults and things like that. And the rest of the week is heavy for hearings. Next week will best just be happy all the way. Yes. Oh, well. So we'll manage. <laughs> we will manage. We always do. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about a recent BC Supreme Court decision. We didn't have time in the podcast last week to talk about this one. This is um, the case of Olushola Babson, um, who had a judicial review of an immediate roadside prohibition decision. And it's a good example of why it's important to get legal advice and not just try and do it yourself. So, yeah, uh, I mean, this is a person who did a do-it-yourselfer, um, and they do it, well, do-it-yourselfer at the superintendent of motor vehicles and then appeal to BC Supreme Court. And part of the problem there is that the material on the um, superintendent of motor vehicles website suggests, okay, you can take your shot here. And then, you know, if you, if you don't succeed, you can take your shot there um, and makes it sound like it'd be an easy thing to do. Uh, of course, you've got to pay. You've got to pay a filing fee at the superintendent for your hearing. And then you've got to pay fees at the um, to file in BC Supreme Court. And you've got all of this stuff that you've got to be able to establish. And, and it's not just a second shot. Yes. So what happened? Mr. Babson um, was given an IRP. Uh, he allegedly almost hit a pedestrian at a crosswalk. Um, the officer stopped him, um, smelled liquor on his breath. Um, other symptoms of impairment were detected. He asked him to provide a sample and he made 21 attempts to blow. During those 21 attempts, unsuccessfully uh, producing a sample, and essentially uh, arguing um, before the hearing that uh, he didn't fail or refuse to comply with the demand, even though after 21 blows, he didn't successfully do it, and that he had a reasonable excuse for not providing a sample into the device. And What was his excuse? I don't remember. I mean, at, at, it, it, as I read clear. the decision, I thought to myself, Okay. Yeah. I can see some defenses here right now. Yeah. I, I hope he's going to but advance did, them, but he, he didn't, didn't, didn't sound like he advanced. Them. So essentially the excuse had to do with his assertion to um, the adjudicator that he has low iron, that he's been being treated by a doctor, uh, that he hadn't eaten all day. And um, he told the police officer that he had a breathing problem, but then never raised any issue with his breathing in the review hearing. And in the review hearing instead, um, he basically just pointed to this iron deficiency and the fact that he hadn't eaten. Um, and the adjudicator quite properly recognized that 
yeah, he might well have those issues, but he didn't explain how they actually affected his ability to blow into the device. Um, he didn't provide any evidence uh, about uh, why he was unable to put his lips around the device and blow. And he didn't address head on some of the things that the officer had said that he was doing in those 21 attempts to provide a sample. Yeah. Um, and it's a fairly common thing. I guess we see that people don't understand sort of the evidentiary um, tests that are set out or that the superintendent applies, which, you know, are <laughs> in law, a balance of probability sort of plus one. Um, in reality, you basically have to prove your case beyond a reasonable doubt. And I think it's also, you know, emblematic of of the difficulty of the process. Like I was doing a judicial review appeal in BC Supreme Court, what, two, two weeks ago now? Uh, yeah, two weeks ago. And during the course of that judicial review, you know, I tried making submissions to the court that like you have to situate you know, when you're contextually interpreting what an, a person has to induce for an, to engage an adjudicator's obligation to consider evidence and arguments, you have to situate this in the context that most of the people appearing before this tribunal are laypersons who aren't going to understand the breadth of case law and the high standard that it actually exists in making your case before this tribunal. And again, like if you go onto their website and you look at the material that the government publishes, it makes it sound like it's a do-it-yourselfer. Like it, it makes it sound like okay, yeah, just you just have to remember they used to have a video. For, yeah, they used to have a cartoon video. Oh yeah, it's you on the other side, and the police officer submits their report, and there's a friendly adjudicator there who's just there to help you through. Yeah, no, right, no, and at all. and and I even argued this in a hearing way back in like 2016, um, a case called Ergen. Uh, was it Ergen? Yeah, a case called Ergen, where I said Mr. Ergen had been self-represented and um, the adjudicator hadn't assisted him in sort of understanding the the way to put forward an argument. And I said, look, like they're an adjudicator. It's similar to a, a member of the judiciary who has to provide sufficient assistance to a self-represented accused. And the court ruled, although I did succeed in that judicial review for other reasons, the court ruled that there is no duty to assist a self-represented individual. Yes. And of course, nobody can be cross-examined in the hearing is one of the statements that it says clearly in the legislation. So the person's there representing themselves, giving evidence at the same time. And the adjudicator's got to be looking at it saying, I'm not going to ask a question, uh, you know, because I, I'd be cross-examining. So back to Babson, he goes, he loses his hearing by himself, doesn't hire a lawyer, to assist him with the judicial review. I mean, probably if he'd consulted with a lawyer, they would have said, you don't have a case for judicial review. And he ends up um, putting further information before the court on judicial review without like going through all the steps of a fresh evidence application. Well, he attempts to. Yes. Uh, so he tries to put in an ECG printout um, of what the court describes as a largely indiscernible photo photocopy of an image that Mr. Babson says stomach surgery he had undergone, which which he told the court was 10 years prior to the incident, a uh, blood requisition from three months after the incident showing that he had no alcohol three months later. <laughs> I had a couple drinks last night, but I bet if I got a blood test now, it'd show me at zero. <laughs> I had a couple drinks last night and I don't know what my blood test would give me right now. Yeah, an optometrist bill from 2021, and then uh, two uh, court documents, apparently. 
So essentially, the the superintendent's counsel is like, look, none of this is admissible on a judicial review. But like, even if it was, it doesn't really establish anything as far as the unreasonableness of the decision. Um, but it it highlights a point. Okay, so all right, Mr. Babson really fails in his method of trying to get this what turns out to be really meaningless evidence in front of the court. But the sad thing is. Our court system in Canada operates on the assumption that an appeal from a tribunal or an appeal from a lower court um, is always only on the facts that are found. And so you can't appeal on the basis of a finding of fact unless you can show that it's completely just ridiculous, essentially. So the findings of fact are made uh, and they defer, we say they defer to the findings of fact, and they're not going to allow the introduction of new evidence uh, in most cases, unless you can like really get over a significant hurdle of relevance and, and, um, and, and, you know, and there's a very strict test there. Yes. I will say there is one good part about Mr. Babson's judicial review. And among the many things that he did wrong, he also filed the judicial review 164 days after the decision. There is a 60-day limitation period in the uh, Motor Vehicle Act to file it. It's 60. Yeah. I told somebody the other day it was 30. Oops. They're uh, phone them back. I don't remember who it was. Um, but this is only for these this tribunal. Yes, I know. Okay. Yeah. So I, I'm not sure now if it was this one or not. So 60 days. Lawyers aren't perfect. 60 days after the decision. Um, uh, is the time limited the Motor Vehicle Act, but there's the court has discretion to extend it. And the superintendent, despite the fact that poor Mr. Babson clearly didn't know what he was doing in the hearing, clearly didn't know what he was doing in the judicial review, the superintendent's like, well, it's out of time, so uh, it should just be thrown out on that basis alone. And the court does say, look, like, yeah, he filed it 164 days late, but turns out he'd actually filed an earlier one in June of 2022, judicially reviewing the actions of the police officer who issued the prohibition, um, it went nowhere. Um, and he didn't file his petition until months after that. But the court was satisfied that the filing of the earlier petition evinced an intention on his part to challenge the review decision. And that because the original petition was filed, even though it was a judicial review of a different administrative action, it still showed that he intended to pursue it. And the court says as well, he's unsophisticated in legal matters. Uh, he appears to have had a great deal of trouble with no small amount of frustration in trying to bring his challenge of the adjudicator's decision to court. And so the court says, yeah, you know what? It's fine. Well, what I don't like about that is that it encourages the self-represented person to go out there and just do it and do it a crappy job like uh, i can miss the deadlines because i'm i'm not a lawyer and then of course if you've got a lawyer you're punished so you're looking at it from the perspective of a lawyer and somebody comes in and they're behind their 60 days mm -hmm. you know probably the appropriate advice if you're if they're beyond the 60 day limitation period is to say you know what draft your own file it and then call me and i can get involved after that um because at least you as a self-represented person we can point to your your lack of sophistication, and then I can come and argue it after the fact, which is really like almost disingenuous, but it's probably a reasonable way for a person to get around the limitation period. Yes. 
So the court ultimately upholds the adjudicator's decision, well, essentially, no. essentially, and even addresses the, the fresh evidence that was did not go through a Palmer test for fresh evidence. It just says, look, it, looking at it, I'm satisfied it would not have affected the outcome. It shows some medical investigations that have been carried out, some of them 10 years prior, without anything to indicate that they would have an ability to, to affect his ability to blow into the device. He didn't challenge the 21 attempts that didn't result in a fail. He didn't address uh, the uh, the blowing behavior. Um, and so the court concludes that the decision is is rational. One thing I've observed in uh, decisions that I've seen where other lawyers have done it and or self-represented individuals have brought me their decision after the fact or review is that uh, often people fail to address the uh, each attempt um, and they fail to understand the functioning of the Alcosensor FST well enough to be able to explain what the police officer is not doing correctly or why it's not uh, it's not giving the correct feedback to the officer. Uh, and 21 attempts, if you're think thinking about it, you know, the police are normally trained to do six. Um, sometimes they'll go further and do nine. Tells me that the police officer at the time is looking at it and saying, you know what, this guy's actually genuinely trying. Um, and that, that uh, you know, he, he had a defense there, unfortunately. He just didn't know it. All right. I want to shift gears and talk about something that's kind of sad. Well, it's definitely sad. Um, it's very sad. It's sad. Uh, what I think you're going to. Yes. Um, this is a recent sentencing decision in an impaired driving um, or dangerous driving causing death case. Um, two young UBC students, they were both 18 years old, first year of university, first month of school, September 2021, um, they were killed in an impaired driving uh, collision um, by a 23-year-old man, um, he, uh, Tim Gurner. He was an international student at UBC. Think about the implications there. Yeah. Uh, driving at speeds apparently between 100 and 120 kilometers an hour in a 40 kilometer an hour zone um, on Northwest Marine Drive. His car veers off the road and hits these two students who are just walking on the sidewalk. It's terrible. It's a horrible, horrible crash. He hits a street lamp, then a boulder. His car gets uh, airborne, and uh, that's how the it ends up hitting them um you know i used to live up by ubc and um i remember i used to live on campus about um 20 years ago there was a collision right in front of my house of a, a fellow who had stolen a 13 or 14 year old who'd stole out of dodge intrepid and he ran into a honda with a brother and sister uh in it coming back from the rodeo i think it was a may long weekend and uh one person died um the, the sister in the back seat, and I, you know, monitored things that have gone on 16th and 10th and going up to UBC there, uh, and there's been just some horrible, horrible driving. I remember, uh, you know, there was a, a, a Evo that was rolled a few times and injured somebody. Um, it's a it's a terrible spot because people seem to think that after you go through that little bit of little bit of, of woods as you're heading up to UBC, it's kind of like driving on the freeway. 
Mm -hmm. um, and um, they've reduced the speed limits consistently. You know, Southwest Marine Drive used to have a dotted line. You could pass on it to driving when driving up to UBC. Now, of course, it's a solid line uh, up until the point where it connects with, what is it, 49th, I think. 41st, 41st. Too boring. So we don't need the layout of the road. Anyway. What are you, what are you talking about? Uh, just, it's just tragic. It's just tragic. So what's the what's the outcome? What's the sentence? So it was a joint submission for three years of jail and a five-year driving prohibition. Pretty appropriate in the range joint submission. What do you think? I think that it's a little higher than you would ordinarily see. Um, I realized there were two deaths, um, and I realized they were, you know, young, young people with promising lives, but it's the driving conduct and the circumstances of the individual offender, not the sympathetic nature of your victim, right? And especially well, the driving nature of the victim. Your victim. The sympathetic nature of the victim, unfortunately, as you know, and I know affects right? public perception hugely. And it's terrible. I know if you, you know, if you, if you, uh. A kill a homeless person, people are not going to view it the same way. It's not like he set out to go and kill two 18-year-olds, right? It's it's a situation or where, or, or, and well, you drive like that, you have to accept that as a risk. I will say that. But um, the the idea, though, that, that like the nature of the victim and, and where the victim is positioned in society can inform the sentence. Because lo I, lots of cases lately for dangerous driving causing death, ever since the changes to the criminal code that made a CSO available, have resulted in conditional sentences being imposed, house arrest. This is a three-year jail sentence, actual jail for three years. It's not CSO eligible. And because it's a three-year jail sentence, this person, an international student, is also going to be deported at the end of their sentence. Yeah. Um, I don't know what happens with parole and things like that if they're paroled and deported at that point. Um, or if they uh, end up serving more of their sentence as a result in order to be able to be basically just deported at the end. Of course, I'm sure they just intend to leave at the end. Um, but um, the sentence, in my mind, is is not off the mark um, for the driving. Um, now that we are in a position where we consider the consequences, which we didn't at the beginning of my career, right? Um, 20 years ago, it was looking at the driving and the consequences were really sort of marginally connected. I mean, the driving um, in this case is abhorrent. Like it I, is abhorrent. But 40 kilometer an hour, you're going 60 to 80 kilometers over the speed limit. Um, but we've seen since that case with the uh, the nurse who was off duty who tried to pass on the right-hand uh, lane and shot through in, in, uh, out in Maple Ridge and, and uh, caused those deaths. That was a dangerous driving causing death that was conducted in BC Supreme Court and New West and the appeal of that, we've seen this um, move more for the courts to take into account the results of the damage. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it's a high sentence in compared to other sentences that are out there. In my mind, it's not a inappropriate sentence to me. Um, but I kind of surprised that it I mean, was negotiated out as a joint submission, it, basically at the high end. But at a joint submission, I mean, you have to take into account that if you were uh, entering a guilty plea, you're making a joint submission and the uh, court is essentially bound to accept a joint submission unless it is, you know, completely contrary to the interests of justice. 
Um, and the rationale underscoring that is that a joint submission is crafted by counsel who know a lot more about the case and potential arguments, and each of them are making concessions that they might not make in a trial. Um, you know, it's saving court time. So there's benefits to the accused. It's saving the victims um, or the survivors from reliving certain experiences. I I suspect that when you see a sentence that is that significant in a joint submission context, where somebody is pleading to dangerous driving as opposed to impaired driving, which could easily have, like the last couple impaired driving causing death sentencings I've done, have attracted us the same sentence. Um, I think when you see all of that, it suggests that there's a lot more that could have come out, but didn't. Oh, yes. So, I mean, th th there's a number of things. You, you never know what the instructions are from the client, right? Um, if, if I committed a offense, I would probably have some idea in my mind of what my punishment should be. Um, I, I don't know if I would be, I would be happy if I got a two-year jail sentence, if I killed two people. Um, so, I mean, I might feel responsibility and, 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 and think that that's appropriate. I don't know. I mean, it's not always just an issue of, um, I mean, you got to think about what the, the client's instructions are. We don't know. Yeah. Um, but yes, there could be, I mean, it could be, a could have been a brutal impaired that they accepted a plea of, a on the dangerous, the person might have had a blood, blood, high blood alcohol concentration and they decided to proceed this way because of problems with admissibility of the evidence or something along that line. So there could be a lot more to it, but it's a, it's a, it's a harsh sentence. It's a, it's a significant sentence in Canadian law, no doubt. Okay. Well, as depressing as that is, I do have good news for the podcast listeners. Oh, okay. We have a McGracken moment. Ladies and gentlemen, let loose the law and justice cracking Eric McGracken! Welcome to the McGracken Moment. Folks, we've got a good precedent here when it comes to defining minor injury. So in 2019, the law was changed to call almost all injuries minor. And now your right to sue is basically gone, but there's a window there of two years where crash victims had their rights largely restricted and most injuries were called minor and the non-pecuniary damages were capped at $5,600 for those injuries. Now, the word minor is very, very deceptive because it's legislative trickery. We all have a sense of what minor means, but the legislature defined minor to capture all sorts of serious injuries, including chronic pain and even certain brain injuries. Well, we've got a case here... Um, taking a chronic soft tissue injury and saying this is not going to be minor. So in a nutshell, the way the law works is if you have an injury that starts as being minor because it's caught by that broad definition, if it ends up lasting a certain amount of time and if it causes serious impairment, and that phrase is also defined, 
then the injury is not minor. So here's the case. It's called Ampabang and Madden. And the litigant was injured in a crash, suffered a chronic shoulder soft tissue injury. He worked a physical job and as a result of the injuries was limited on the job and over time shifted to more administrative duties. Now, the injuries were probably permanent, but that didn't stop ICBC from saying they're minor. The parties couldn't agree, so they went to the CRT, and the CRT said, no, this person does not have minor injuries because of the serious impairment that these likely permanent injuries are causing on his ability at his job site. And that's one of the factors you look at when determining serious impairment. So folks, it's a good precedent. I've got it up on BC Injury Law. So visit that if you want more information. And not just any McGracken moment, as we've just heard, a little bit of good news for people who are trying to fight those minor injury claims. So, you know, maybe there are some silver linings today. Um, I don't know because I haven't heard it because you just announced it and you're going to put it in there. I'm sure it's great. You're supposed to like pretend like you've heard it all. (laughs) All right. Um, Well, I, you know, it's always good to hear from Eric and uh, and get the updates on what's going on in the personal injury world. I mean, the reality is that uh, the reality is that you and I are so focused on our, you know, defending driving offenses that um, we're not uh, quite so attuned to it. And there's the, uh, the um, value of a particular expertise, right, Wrigley? Yes. All right, now it's time for the Ridiculous Driver of the Week. A surprising bestseller? The pinpoint method of cross-examination is catching on. Law firms and new litigators across Canada have caught on to cross-examination, the pinpoint method. Kyla Lee's straightforward handbook that teaches you effective cross-examination skills. Oh my gosh. And we this, had so many choices this week. So many, so many choices. This, this one was my favorite. I know you had uh, one. We might yeah, save that yeah, one for next yeah. week because it was pretty good. But this one was a Canadian ridiculous driver. So I always like to give those priority. This is out of Ontario. Ontario OPP, the Ontario Provincial Police, pulled somebody over who was driving down the highway with saran wrap in place of their windshield that is awesome saran wrap it's very transparent yeah. you know yeah. clear plastic is even more transparent than than glass problem with the wipers i would think yeah. uh and they they actually released the information to ctv so it was a ctv news story you can see photos of the missing windshield and like the, the caption says Ontario Provincial Police want to remind drivers the plastic wrap is not a suitable replacement for a missing windshield I just like what? How does your your thought process go? Where you can go? Oh, I have a you know I have a a missing windshield and I've got to drive on the highway. I know what's going to stay in place and not blow into my face and definitely give me good vision on the roadway and not fog up. I'm a defense lawyer through and through. So the first thing I thought was, okay, you're in the cabin high in the woods. Your cell phone's dead and you have no charger or there's no cell phone service. You have to get back to civilization. You've got somebody in the back seat who's been injured. You've got to get them to the hospital. Your uh, uh, a moose took out your windshield. You've kicked it out. You've realized I have some saran wrap in the trunk. You know, I I MacGyver will MacGyver myself a windshield. Um, that was my thought process when I saw. 
Yes. Put a motorcycle Your honor. on and Your honor. without a windshield. Your honor. Well, yeah, roll the windows down. Um, I was driving through the desert in uh, about 1990, 1990 um, in in uh, Nevada, uh, between California on my way to Las Vegas, just actually on my way to St. George's, Utah, where I stayed the night. Um, or uh, hang on. That's not where I stayed that time, but anywhere close to that. Mesquite, Nevada. We're, we're back to Paul describing the so, roadway. And uh, there was a fellow who was like driving beside me. He'd get up in front of me. He'd look at me and then he'd drive ahead of me and then he'd slow down. So I would pass him all the way through the desert, like Death Valley. And uh, he had no windshield, no windows in his car at all. That was four-door sedan. <laughs> it was really spooky and I was freaked right out. You know, I was like a, a basically... 18, 19, 20 years old. I was 20. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well. He had no saran wrap, apparently. No saran not, wrap. Not no motorcycle helmet. Just no no windows at all in his vehicle. Well, kind of like a Jeep. Yeah. You know? No motorcycle. Uh, no helmet. No nothing. Like, it's just his, his face, the wind blowing in his face. Like Bob from Twin Peaks? Basically not. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Well, that's our podcast. If you need to reach us about a driving law-related issue, you can find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com or give us a call at 604-685-8889. And tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.